1: Richard Sarant's Strange Planet, following the truth wherever it leads, exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites, revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from the Great White North and his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard. Good evening. We have a mystery story out of Washington. Five people have been arrested and
0: charged with breaking into the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee in the middle of the night.
1: The Democratic National Committee is located in the Watergate office building. The burglars forced a stairwell door, then taped its latch open. The door, now part of police evidence, was noticed by one of the guards employed by the Watergate complex. At first, the police found nothing. Then they spied five men crouching behind some desks. Neither... The president, obviously, or anybody in the White House, or anybody in authority, in any of the committees working for the reelection of the president, have any responsibility for it?
0: There you go. Fifty years ago this week, the Watergate scandal began early in the morning of June 17, 1972, when several burglars were arrested in the office of the Democratic National Committee, located, of course, in the Watergate complex of buildings in Washington, D.C., and this was no ordinary robbery. The Prowlers were connected to President Richard Nixon's reelection campaign, and they had been caught wiretapping phones and stealing documents. The ensuing attempted cover-up of the break-in led to President Nixon's eventual resignation in August of 1974. Watergate, our... Great National Nightmare, in the words of President Gerald Ford, was the most impactful scandal in American and perhaps world history. Watergate. And here, with a guided tour, is John O'Connor. John is an experienced trial lawyer practicing law in San Francisco. He's tried cases in state and federal court throughout the country, served as assistant U.S. attorney in Northern California, and, of course, perhaps best noted for representing uh, Mark Felt who uh, was, of course, Deep Throat. He's the author of Postgate, How the Washington Post Betrayed Deep Throat, Covered Up Watergate, Began Today's Partisan Advocacy Journalism, and his latest hot off the presses is The Mysteries of Watergate, What Really Happened. John, welcome back. How are you? Hey, good, Richard. Fifty years ago. It's a long time. Some of my listeners are familiar with the word Watergate, the term Watergate, which has come to sort of symbolize, you know, the gate symbolizes all conspiracies and scandals. Now everything is something gate. It all begins with Watergate. But just for those not overly familiar, give us a brief timeline for some context of the break-in itself and who participated.
2: Well, it was the morning, early morning, June 17th, 1972, when um, uh, security guards making their rounds saw tape on the exit door at the basement level of the Watergate office complex. Well, the Watergate office complex is the hub in Washington, D.C. of a lot of activity. All the big rollers from other uh, parts of the country and the world will stay there when they're in Washington at that time. And he noticed the day the, before, two hours earlier, he had noticed the door was taped open. And so he thought maybe it's a maintenance man. they maintenance people do that. So he removed the tape. Thought, well, a maintenance man had left it on there. And a couple hours later, he found tape on again. So he he thought there's a burglary in process. There was one in process. He called the police. uh, He called the security guard, eventually the police. They went to the sixth floor. They went to the various floors. And by the time they got to the sixth floor, they found uh, burglars in the offices of the Democratic National Committee, five of them, all of them, interestingly, somehow connected with the infamous Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba under President John F. Kennedy, trying to liberate the country from Castro, which was an abject failure. But nonetheless, they caught these five fellows in the burglary. Um, And what I would tell you is, eventually, the cover-up of that crime ended up resulting in Richard Nixon's resignation from office right ahead of the posse. He was going to get impeached and removed with certainty. So he simply resigned. He resigned two years later on August 9th, 1974. And uh, it is the most impactful scandal in world history. And all of it for your audience really prompted by sensational journalism. Originally this thing happened. It was very curious to all of us. And I was one of the, I was a young lawyer at the time. And everybody was curious about what had happened but it did not seem to get great public attention for the first four or five months. And the thing seemed to be dying away. They uh, indicted, the government indicted the seven people involved, the five burglars and their two supervisors who were in a hotel room across the street. The uh, government got the eighth person, the wiretap monitor to turn state's evidence and be a witness. So th- those eight people were involved and everyone thought that the thing was over. Then, all of a sudden, the Post started some very sensational stories which tended to tie the burglary to a much broader campaign of spying and sabotage emanating from the White House. That got everybody's attention. Eventually, things broke loose. A couple of people had to turn evidence, uh, states' evidence. John Dean was a White House counsel most famous for testifying against Nixon. So that, in a word, eventually, for your audience, 40 Nixon officials or supporters went to jail as a result of implications coming from the Watergate scandal. Not all of it dealing with the burglary, but other things that were discovered at the time, uh, because more and more as the covers were pulled back, other crimes were discovered. But it was a terrible scandal. It resulted in the removal of the president and Gerald Ford became president. And probably because of the terrible, uh, out, out, uh, the effects of the scandal, Ford probably lost the election narrowly to Jimmy Carter as Jimmy Carter pounced on Watergate. So this had profound implications for our country's political history, it probably uh, had effect on Vietnam. After Watergate, the Democrats pulled all of the deals that Nixon had made with the South Vietnamese. And that's when we had people grabbing onto helicopters and and fleeing Vietnam. So it had profound effect on our foreign policy, profound effect on our domestic policies. And uh, thus, Gate, it was such a sensational scandal that impacted everything. We were all glued to our television sets. Uh, Every day, it was must-see TV. Uh, I was in San Francisco, and I started subscribing to the Post for a while because it was such an important paper. The Post was vaulted from really a second-tier, decent but not great local rag uh, that was sort of a gossipy Washington D.C. only paper to a paper of uh, re- international renown, uh, great prestige. The paper won Pulitzers. The reporters Woodward and Bernstein for the Post uh, had a best-selling book. A hit movie, wonderful movie, by the way, Um, and it it goes down in our lore and people are still talking about the gate of it.
0: John O'Connor, the author of The Mysteries of Watergate, What Really Happened. So you mentioned, you know, the Bay of Pigs and um, I think you mentioned the plumbers. Let's go back because the origin of what led to the break in at the Watergate complex goes back. Uh, maybe even further, but certainly to 1971 with the the uh, the Pentagon Papers and the leak of the the Pentagon Papers by this uh, Rand Corporation employee Daniel Ellsberg, who who leaks all the Pentagon secrets about the Vietnam War in 1971, and this of course enrages Nixon. He creates, you know, this this group of I, I, what counterintelligence uh, people to you know to to plug the leaks, and hence they're called the Plumbers. So. Who were the plumbers?
2: Well, first of all, the plumbers were it was their own nickname because they were there. too. It was called the uh, might be the domestic intelligence unit, something like that. But uh, but basically it's their own joke because they were plugging leaks. They called themselves the plumbers. The two plumbers that were first named were Boy Scouts. Uh, There was a fellow named Eagle Crow whose nickname was Evil Crow. The same way you call a, a terribly obese person, Tiny. Eagle Crow was the most straight, upright Boy Scouts ever come along. The other uh, original plumber was a fellow named David Young, who was an assistant to Henry Kissinger. Now, what had happened was Kissinger was outraged by the leak, the Pentagon Papers. He was also outraged by the leak in 1969 of the Cambodian bombing in the Vietnam War. Somebody leaked that they were bombing the Vietnamese supply lines in Cambodia. And I was in law school at the time and the campuses just broke out tremendously then because it looked like Nixon was widening the war when he'd really found a pretty clever way to get the Vietnamese. Their supply lines were going through the neighboring country. And of course he went over there and bombed it. Uh, But Nixon was livid. Kissinger was really livid and had the FBI wiretap a bunch of people, newsmen and national security officials. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover, the head of the FBI, was not so happy that the FBI had been dragged into this. They didn't quite like tapping newsmen, didn't like tapping national security officials. So Hoover said after this, no more. So that was one of the precursors to uh, Watergate because the White House realized that the FBI was not going to help them plug these leaks. They weren't going far enough. Even on the Ellsberg case, they were upset at Hoover because he wouldn't investigate hard enough. So they brought in their own investigative people. I talked about the two plumbers. They were the innocent guys. They were Boy Scouts. But soon, this CIA fellow, former CIA agent named Howard Hunt, was hired by the White House to start doing this sort of dirty work, sort of sleuthing. Uh, and what nobody thought or realized was that thereby the CIA was infiltrating the White House. Uh, and that is actually the case. We, you can see it now through records. But at the time, they'd never thought of that. But Hunt came in to supposedly help with Daniel Ellsberg. Uh, that was the start. And he joined the plumbers. And then they got this other fellow named Gordon Liddy who was an ex-treasury agent that they like to use for for usually for firearms policy and other things, FBI uh, stuff. Uh, He was a former agent. So that's the way the plumbers got their start. Uh, But soon, Liddy moved over to the campaign, and he became the general counsel of the campaign, and he was the leader, along with Hunt, of the team that went into the Watergate, at that point they were no longer with the White House; they were now with the campaign to re-elect the president.
0: Creep, creep. What creep. an appropriate name—the committee to yeah, re-elect creep. the uh, the president. So, right. so as as you say, 1972, Nixon seeking re-election, the committee to re-elect the president or creep. Um, it always struck me as curious. The, the, um, now when we see the Attorney General, it's, there seems to be such a, a, a greater distance, certainly with, let's say, Bill Barr and, uh, and Donald Trump. There's a real division there. But um, John Mitchell, who was the former Attorney General, good friends with, with Richard Nixon – He resigns to become the chair of his uh, of his uh, reelection campaign. That seemed is that uh, I mean, was that out of the ordinary? It seems now, in retrospect, that's not something you would expect to see.
2: Well, it was out of the ordinary and and Mitchell didn't like it. Mitchell sort of fought it. Mitchell goes back. He was a law partner of Richard Nixon, so he's very well trusted. He was a bond lawyer, very much a pillar of the community not a skullduggery type of guy, not a bad guy. He was, he, he, he did bonds for municipalities that were trying to build sidewalks and bridges. So, but Nixon trusted him, he was his law partner and uh, Nixon's two henchmen, they used to call him the German shepherds. There were two guys named H.R. Haldeman and John Ehrlichman uh, who were the president's closest advisors. They didn't like John Mitchell. For various reasons, they thought he was their rival because Nixon did trust Mitchell implicitly, and he was a very conservative pipe-smoking guy who really was not one to cater to any of those hijinks that later on came about. One of the great ironies of Watergate is that people associate Mitchell with those hijinks, and that's absolutely not who he is. James Rosen has done a fantastic book on that called Strongman. But Mitchell, and one of the great ironies of history, and there are many in Watergate, he had nothing to do with this, but he was head of creep, and it was odd that he went over there. He was close to Nixon, but in a way, Ehrlichman and Haldeman were banishing him to the campaign that was their um, and they convinced Nixon that he had to have Mitchell over there. Mitchell fought it. he didn't like it who wants to run a campaign that's you know buying yard signs and buying ads and doing all the. Grunt work. He didn't like it. He was a good lawyer, um, but he did it out of great loyalty to Nixon. And Ehrlichman and Haldeman loved the idea that that Mitchell was out there, uh, you know, shoveling the shoveling the cow pies out of the barnyard where they were in the White House, uh, sipping tea with the president. So that's really the start of this. Is what happens as that transition comes about, and all the other things that were going on with the leaks. Uh, the White House now knew that they had to investigate the uh, the Ellsberg-Pentagon uh, papers deal themselves, that they weren't going to get help from the FBI, which seemed to be slow in it. Uh, again, it was Henry Kissinger. Henry, originally, the Pentagon papers did not hurt Nixon. The Pentagon papers hurt Johnson and hurt Kennedy, but did not hurt Nixon. When they first came out, Nixon said, hey, this is great. This screws Johnson. Happy, happy. Well, Henry Kissinger was really getting screwed because he was the architect of Vietnam. He was the brilliant guy that had come up with a lot of this stuff. Although people didn't realize it at the time that if you really dig into the Pentagon Papers, it really gets all over Henry Kissinger and his plans. So Henry Kissinger was livid and convinced Nixon that this this might be, Ellsberg must be connected to the Soviets, that the Soviets might've had these things, that he was a Soviet agent, and so he got Nixon all riled up. And Nixon, one button you could push with Nixon is say that somebody was tied in with communists. Nixon had been an anti-communist since he was a, uh, a congressman. He had the famous Alger Hiss case where he outed a communist that was in the State Department. And he was known as being a tough guy against uh, St- uh, not Stalin Khrushchev of the Soviet Union. So Kissinger got Nixon all worked up. So then we start forming in the White House and later in the campaign, these investigators in a political body. And as my client, Mark Felt, as an FBI agent, he is saying something had to go wrong here. And he tells Woodward and Bernstein this, something had to go wrong here because you are now having investigators in a political organization. And where does the line end between national security for which all this is okay, and breaking into place is okay if you're breaking into Hitler or Stalin or the weather underground. It's not okay if you're breaking into a political enemy. So Mark Felt, aka Deep Throat and the FBI, always thought that this thing was doomed for trouble. And Hitler, or Hitler, <laughs> Hoover, while Hoover was alive, the head of the FBI, thought that the people that Nixon was bringing into the White House were going to get him into trouble. And they were both very, very correct in their assessments.
0: OK, so getting back to creep, the, the committee to reelect the president, John Dean, who is a kind of a, a, a general
2: counsel or uh, in the White House, He's but he's the White House, White House counsel when Ehrlichman used to have those duties. And when he got closer and closer to Nixon and Nixon wanted him always in the Oval Office, Ehrlichman had some minor legal stuff that he used to handle. He's a good lawyer. He handed them off to this young guy from the Justice Department, and it was very much an inflated title. He was named White House Counsel, but there are White House Counsel that are very important, and there are White House Counsel that are just flunkies. Dean was a young flunky, who who in his book Blind Ambition talks about how he tried to go from being a young flunky to a higher guy in the White House. Thus, he was trying to do a lot of things. Blind Ambition. If we look at the uh, title of his book, uh, on which, for your viewers, the the movie Blonde Ambition is named uh, with uh, Reese Witherspoon. Uh, the So Dean is a big character here. He's a guy, a striver from the Justice Department that has this overblown title and is trying to move his way up the ranks. So he's another player that we got to look at.
0: Did Did he... Was he responsible for recommending that G. Gordon Liddy come in and help the and help creep do, you know, some dirty tricks on the Democrats?
2: Oh, absolutely. He was the guy that talked Liddy into coming over from the White House where he was in this plumbers unit, which really didn't, you know, it did a little bit of hijinks. But um, but he talked Liddy into coming over on the grounds that if he became creeps lawyer, it was really cover. For really an intelligence operation. So it was Dean that wanted Liddy to run an intelligence operation. Why? Because guess who was going to control it? From the White House, Dean was pulling the strings uh, on what was going on in the campaign. Mitchell really didn't pay much attention to this security stuff. It was way below his pay grade. Dean, unbeknownst to most people, was really controlling Liddy and and Liddy's uh, guy at the CRP, a guy named Jeb Magruder, who was a handsome, uh, do-nothing guy who wouldn't brush his teeth unless somebody told him to. So he was a guy that Dean controlled. So Dean essentially controlled Magruder and Liddy over at the CRP, but nobody, nobody knew that.
0: All right. We're going to take a quick timeout. We'll come back. John O'Connor, the author of The Mysteries of Watergate. What really happened as we commemorate the 50th anniversary of the Watergate break-in right here. Don't go anywhere. Back with more in a moment. Guys, we've seen so many people making ridiculous money from crypto, but did you know it's easy for you to do the same? The Copy My Crypto membership site shows you the coins that the YouTuber James McMahon personally holds and allows you to copy him. It's like having a big brother who knows what he's doing. You don't need to know a thing about crypto or how to invest, as you simply do what he does. So let me tell you more about James. He runs the Crypto with James YouTube channel, which, despite heavy censorship, has over 17,000 subscribers and 1 million views. Since March 2020, he's told his viewers to buy 26 crypto coins. Had you put in $100 into each one, it would now be worth over $53,000. Of the 26 coins, his top pick of the year, a coin called Phantom, is currently up over 440 times from when he said to buy. That one call alone has retired a number of people, including guys in their 20s and 30s. Remember, this is public knowledge. You can go to YouTube and verify this for yourself. So if you'd like to join the 1,300 members who copy James, then stop what you're doing and head over to copymycrypto.com forward slash dollar copy my forward slash dollar that's d-o-l-l-a-r you'll not only find proof of everything i've said but listeners get full access for just one dollar you can't find this offer anywhere else but act fast because the offer ends soon that's copy forward slash dollar that's d-o-l-l-a-r don't take this offer lightly he's the real deal go visit the site now
1: welcome back welcome back to Richard Serrett's strange planet.
0: There's been a break in at Democratic headquarters, and they were bugging the place.
1: Woodward. Bernstein, you're both on the story, Nettle. Now. now. Redford. I'm Bob Woodward of the Washington Post. Mr. Markham, are you here in connection with the Watergate burglary? And not here. Hoffman. Hi, uh, this is Carl Bernstein of the Washington Post, and I was just wondering if you can remember. All the president's men. The story of the two young reporters who cracked the Watergate conspiracy. White House. Howard Hunt, please. He might be Mr. Colson's office. Who's Charles Colson? Did you know, uh, Howard Hunt?
0: Well, the White House said he was doing some investigative work.
1: What do you say? They stumbled into leads. Certainly it comes as no surprise to you that Howard was with the CIA. No, no surprise at all. They tripped over clues. We'd like to see all the material requested by the White House. All White House
0: transactions are coming. This whole
1: thing is a cover-up, it's right on our nose And piece by piece They solve the greatest detective story In American history There is no way the White House can control the investigation I I don't want to say anymore, okay? You been threatened if you tell the truth Is there a cover-up? Don't you understand what you're on to? Mitchell knew? Of course, Mitchell knew Woodward,
0: Bernstein Get in here
1: At times, it looked as if it might cost them their jobs.
0: You guys are about to write a story that says the former attorney general, the highest-ranking law enforcement
1: officer in this country, is a crook. Their reputations. Why is the Post trying to do it? I don't know. Perhaps even their lives.
0: There you go. Welcome back. And uh, John O'Connor is with us as we commemorate the 50th anniversary of the Watergate break-ins this week, actually. And uh, his brand new book is "The Mysteries of Watergate: What Really Happened," uh, which is also, coincidentally, <laughs> not really the uh, the name of his podcast, "The Mysteries of Watergate." We just heard coming back there the uh, the trailer for that uh, classic. I think that came out in 1976. Uh, All the president's men just won uh, like a truckload of uh, Academy Awards. Uh, just a, a wonderful piece of movie making. Um, we were talking about uh, John Dean, and uh, he—he's the one that—that that I guess convinces Mitchell to bring G. Gordon Liddy on board. And I don't know if this is true or apocryphal, but G. Gordon Liddy makes this presentation i don't know he's got like a whiteboard and he's running down his uh this operation gemstone all these dirty tricks that he wants to employ you know we'll get a big boat full of beautiful hookers and we'll invite the democrats on and we'll get pictures of them in compromising positions and i think you know according to the story mitchell was just like wow who is this you know guy this guy's crazy i don't want to see him again uh is is that true did he did he propose all these dirty tricks
2: Yeah, well, first of all, it was Dean who, as we talked about earlier, had lured Liddy over to the CRP. All Mitchell wanted was a lawyer to handle. There was a new disclosure law in which you now had to start disclosing who who contributed to the campaign. And there were different timing issues on it. And you needed a lawyer. So that's all Mitchell wanted was he wanted a lawyer to handle the grunt work. Uh, Dean said, oh, this is a cover to you, uh, Gordon. You're going to act like you're the lawyer, but you're really going to do this intelligence operation. We need a really ramped up intelligence, and you'll have a budget of half a million for openers, half a million dollars, which in those days was huge. And so Liddy thought he was going to be a big intelligence guy. He had been an FBI agent in the past, was influenced by Howard Hunt when he was over at the White House into cloak and dagger things. He thought he really wanted to do anything in the world. Liddy was a little bit crazed. He had very much of a uh, militaristic, Teutonic love of all things German, and he <laughs> he was crazed and even named a lot of his operations after <laughs> Hitler's operations. You can't make this up. But he came up. The first meeting was, I think, January 27th. Mitchell was still attorney general, and they met in Mitchell's office. And appropriately, he had the CIA prepare these fancy charts of his proposals of all these things, kidnapping protesters, drugging them, uh, doing all kinds of things. It was crazed. And um, uh, you know, even at one point, Liddy talked about how he could get guys from organized crime to kidnap and drug these people. And uh, that was going to cost a lot of money, though. And Mitchell puffed on his pipe. He was a very dry, stone-faced guy. And he said, well, uh, Gordon, let's not contribute any more to organized crime than we need to. Thank you very much. (laughs) You know, Gordon, by the way, will you burn these charts? And that was the end of it. Mitchell thought he'd done, done with that. A week later, they had another meeting. So Dean is telling Liddy, oh, don't worry. You just, it just costs too much. It costs too much. Pair the thing down and come back next week. So he did that. He pared it down. This time he didn't have his CIA charts. He just had a sheaf of paper. But once again, the proposals were outrageous. Uh, one of the proposals originally was to have a chase plane follow a plane of of a democratic official so that they could wiretap the plane. Uh, in other words, if you get close enough to another plane, you can wiretap the plane. It was silly stuff. And once again, Liddy. um, uh, Mitchell was so disturbed by it and Dean could say that that Dean ended the meeting. Dean was at both meetings. He'll now try to claim that he was oh Johnny a boy scout caught in bad company but he was behind all this. So anyway, at some point it became clear that Mitchell wasn't buying what Liddy was selling and Liddy had no uh, emotional IQ and and uh, so Dean ends the meeting. Liddy is furious with him because Dean's not supporting him. Magruder's not supporting him. Why not? Well, obviously it looks like this is killed. Uh, Later on, a couple of months later, Magruder reports that Mitchell had okayed the intelligence project, whatever that means. In fact, within a couple of months, they had a new um, budgeting structure in which Magruder was simply given budget items and he had to determine what was spent within those items. And he realized he really didn't need approval for something like this. He had a, an intelligence budget. So he told people that Mitchell had approved it. I do not believe that Mitchell ever approved it. Mitchell and his assistant said that he never approved it. It was an, on an agenda item. And it wasn't even clear that the project that Liddy proposed two months later, uh, that Magruder put two months later, would even specified what was going to be done under this project. But anyway, there's a a he said, she said on whether that uh, project was ever approved. And uh, Magruder later claimed that Mitchell had authorized, had told him to go into the Watergate, that he had specifically told him that. I I will tell you this. I don't believe it. Most people don't believe it, that know anything about this. Uh, This is an invention of Magruder. Now, uh, One of the ways Liddy talks about in his book, and I'll get you and just your audience into a little detail. There's so much fascinating detail here. Liddy was big on using prostitutes. He loved this. All this stuff is in their own fevered imagination. Mitchell is not asking for this, but he loved using prostitutes to get information from Democrats. So they were going to hire all these prostitutes in Miami where the convention was. And this whole thing was to focus on Miami and to try to get information from the Democrats. Silly. But um, and, and, and all Mitchell cared about was not having demonstrators at the Republican convention that was going to be in Miami. Anyway, uh, one of the things that Magruder kept bugging Mitchell for, no, I'm sorry, kept bugging Liddy for was, gee, can't we bring the prostitutes up to Washington so we can try them out? <laughs> I'm not uh, Richard. I'm not lying about this. It's and Liddy writes about in his book. And as he said, Importing horse to Washington D.C. is like importing cars to Detroit. Uh, You know, we have we have plenty of them here already. But he said once he finally gave in to Magruder, who he hated. Once he gave in to Magruder, said, "Okay, Gordon, or okay, Jeb, you can sample the wares. I'll bring a girl up, or girl or two up here, and you can sample the wares." And he said the look on Magruder's face was such that he said, "Somehow, I know Magruder's going to get approval for this project." Okay. So I think what happened was he started getting flack from Liddy. Liddy sort of ratted out him to uh, Liddy, ratted out Magruder to Colson, Charles Colson, uh, a White House guy who then called up uh, Magruder and said, Why isn't this thing getting done? So I think Magruder felt the pressure to have this project approved. He wanted Dean's approval. Uh, so it got approved. And somehow this thing got steered to the Watergate in D.C., not in Miami now. All the plans had been to protect things in Miami on either of the two conventions. Now they're in Washington, D.C. And Liddy, who has the money, you need money, Liddy because he's the general counsel who's got a bag of money. And uh, Liddy could never figure out why they would go in to the DNC. He said, this is a worthless target. Liddy wanted intelligence. He wanted to do all these break-ins and find out intelligence. Um, he thought that Mitchell was behind it. Mitchell wasn't. That Mitchell was all for it. He thought he was pleasing uh, his boss. He was pleasing John Dean, really. But anyway, he can't couldn't figure out why they were going into the DNC. It made no sense. There was nothing of value there. Nothing was going on. There was no intelligence to be gained. Uh, and he was going to blow through some of his budget. He only had so much money in his intelligence budget. So now we have Liddy finally saying, OK, we'll go along. We'll break into the Watergate and we'll do this wiretapping. Uh, he was told, Richard, now I'm going to get into the weeds here a little bit just to tell so because he was told that they were going to tap the DNC director named Larry O'Brien, OK, and that that was their target. That's the only thing that made any an ounce of sense anyway. That itself was absurd. The whole thing that they were telling Liddy was absurd, because there's, you will find cross-currents of lies and secret agendas throughout Watergate. There isn't one massive plan, uh, top-down. It's a bunch of different fiefdoms and agendas all lying to one another. You let Haldeman
1: slip away? Yes. You've done worse than let Haldeman slip away you get people feeling sorry for him. I didn't think that was possible. In a conspiracy like this,
0: you build from the outer edges and you go step by step. If you shoot too high and miss, everybody feels more secure. You put the investigation back months. we know that. And if we're wrong, we're resigning. Were we wrong? You'll have to find that out, won't you?
1: Listen, I'm tired of your games. I don't want hints. I need to know what you know. It was a Halderman operation... The whole business was run by Haldeman, the money, everything. It won't be easy getting at him. He was insulated. You'll have to find out how.
0: There you go. Another clip from all the president's men, Robert Redford, as uh, Washington Post journalist Bob Woodward, Dustin Hoffman, as Washington Post reporter Carl Bernstein, and uh, the great late Hal Holbrook playing deep throat, feeding these Washington Post Uh, reporters, all this information regarding Watergate and the ensuing cover-up. So uh, we're we're talking about um, sort of the lead-up to the break-in. There was actually a a break-in, was it May 28th, I think, uh, of 1972?
2: Right, right. That weekend, around May 28th to May 30th, they had an abortive original attempt, I think, on May 28th. You're correct on that, Richard. It might not have been until the 29th or 30th that they actually made it in and installed some wiretaps. Now interestingly here's where things get good for your audience. Everyone has thought and Liddy himself was told that the break-in target was the phone or room and or room of Larry O'Brien the director of the DNC. Now that's somewhat logical if this is going to be a campaign intelligence operation The only guy in the DNC that might know anything is Larry O'Brien because he's a he's a muckety muck. He talks to a lot of people. The DNC had no real campaign authority at the time, but one can say, okay, maybe they're listening to O'Brien because O'Brien had so much inside knowledge of things. Uh, It's been speculated, for instance, that O'Brien knew the inside track to a billionaire Howard Hughes who had funneled cash to Nixon. Uh, got discovered and and probably helped Kennedy beat him in 1960, that Hughes was probably funneling money to Nixon again. Maybe that's what they're looking for and so forth. What does he know and so forth? But as it turns out, Richard, Larry O'Brien wasn't in town. He hadn't been in town for weeks. He wasn't going to be in town for weeks. He was going to be traveling around the country, going to conventions, And so they told Liddy that they're going to put in this super sophisticated $30,000 room bug that was undetectable and they're going to put it in O'Brien's office. Liddy gives that his 30,000 bucks to one of the CIA guys, James McCord, that was now infiltrating the campaign. And he thinks he's getting a bug in Larry O'Brien's office. He can't figure out why they're doing it. He doesn't think this is a good idea. Why are we blowing our budget like this? But okay, I'll do it. Now, as it turns out, the burglars for those two weeks before the arrests were not listening to Larry O'Brien. They were listening on the phone of a minor official that wasn't even with the DNC. He was with an affiliated Democratic group called the Association of Democratic Chairman, where he was dealing with the Democratic chairman of Montana, of Idaho, whoever. And he had a large suite of offices because he was essentially an entertainment guy. People would come in. They'd use his suite of offices. He was often on travel. His secretary would take care of him. They'd use the offices and the phones. And that's who they were listening to was the phone of the guy that was traveling around.
0: So there's no useful intel there if you're trying to, you know, uh, defeat the uh, the Democrats in the upcoming campaign. You're not
2: getting anything useful. Nothing. There was no chance that you were going to get anything useful. And the guy's name was Spencer Oliver Jr. He was a minor official. Like I say, Globe tried it around. Uh, So what was it they were getting at? And it turns out they did not wiretap Larry O'Brien, even though McCord told them that they had wiretapped O'Brien. But gosh, the bug didn't work. The 30,000 bug that I spent so much money on, gosh, it was shielded by concrete and steel. The signal must not be getting through. I'm sorry about that, Gordon. Gosh, what happened? But meanwhile, they're listening to this minor official. And they have a monitor that's listening all day. Now, here's what the Post knows, uh, but the Republicans don't find out. The monitor, after the arrest, the monitor comes to the Republicans and says, please give me a lawyer. I want a lawyer. The Republicans said, oh, no. Oh, no, you don't. don't. We don't know that you're with us. We want to disclaim any responsibility for us. Go get your own lawyer. Now, why do I say this, Richard? This is one of the dumbest mistakes a lawyer could ever confront. You have some. John, pardon the
0: interruption. We're going to be a cliffhanger here. We're going to find out exactly what happened. John O'Connor, the author of The Mysteries of Watergate What Really Happened. Also, check out the podcast, The Mysteries of Watergate. You can get that at, uh, you can listen and subscribe at postgatebook.com. A new Richard
1: Serrett's Strange Planet drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Subscribe at strangeplanetpodcast.com.